Well, listen, I've been in a uh, sermon series called Copy and Shadow. And if you've been here with us, uh, it's based on the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says that you can go to the Old Testament, you can look at the tabernacle, you can see the brazen altar, you can see the bronze laver, you can see the, the menorah or the table of showbread or the altar of incense or the Ark of the Covenant, and all of those things are merely a copy and shadow of heavenly things. In other words, he's saying when you go to the Old Testament and you read about the tabernacle that was built by Moses as he was directed by God, you can see Jesus piece by piece in every article of a equipment that is in the tabernacle. And so that's what we've been doing. And today specifically, we're going to go, we've went through several different pieces and today we're focusing on the menorah or what is called the golden candlestick. And the title of my message this morning is called Stay Lit. Amen. <laughs> Some of you young kids laugh at that, but, but I'm serious. You need to stay lit. And uh, so, so we're going to get into this. You can turn to Exodus chapter 25 and we'll read a few verses but here's the thing, you know, we're going to get to a point in here, and I've been, I've been taking something from the Old Testament, then connecting it to Jesus in the New. Specifically, we've been in the book of John, and Jesus said that He is the light of the world. How many of you, whenever the ice storm hit, y'all lost power? Like you didn't have electric for a few days. Anybody? Anybody didn't have lights for a few days? I don't know if you realize this or not, but like you, you really take lights for granted until they're not there. I mean, right now, if the lights were to go out in this place, it would be an awkward day in the church house, would it not? Like, everybody would be trying to figure out how to get out of here in the pitch black dark. And, like, you know, when you're driving down the road and electricity's on, you don't even notice the street lights. Things are just pretty much lit up. But then all of a sudden, when the electric goes out, man, it is so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face. I remember that first night it went out, and I was actually reading, and I had to figure out how to, uh, a way I got, like, a flashlight, you know, and I was, like, holding it up over so I could read some. But everything was pitch black dark. But let me tell you something you really don't appreciate the light until you've been in the darkness you really don't and even in your own life in your spiritual life many people do not appreciate the light until they've been in the depths of darkness and when Jesus has come into their life and lit up their hearts and brought them out of darkness into light, all of a sudden there's a newfound appreciation. There's a newfound worship. When somebody knows they've come out of the darkness, let me tell you something, you don't have to ask them to raise their hands and sing to the Lord. Because there's a song in their heart because they who were in the darkness have now seen light. But see, the menorah, the lampstand, actually points to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. If you live in a world without Jesus, you live in a world where the electric has gone out, folks. You live in a world where you cannot see your hand in front of your face without Jesus. And so many people in today's world are choosing to willfully live without Jesus, and they're finding themselves in a dark spot. But let me, let's move on to this in Exodus chapter 25. It says, now this is God once again giving Moses the directions to build the tabernacle and all the pieces and he's giving him instructions on how to build the golden lampstand and here's what he says. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. Now this is stuff as you're reading, you're probably like, I'm going to go ahead and skip this. I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it, but just hold on. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, you shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Let's pray together real quick. Father, we just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you come to bring light. And Lord, you, you, you say in your word that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord Jesus, you know the darkness that is in all of our hearts, God, the, the, the things that we're going through, the things that we're dealing with. But Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit to illuminate, God, to reveal who you are in your beauty, God, and in all of your glory. And would you change us by your word this morning, Father? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first point is that the lampstand actually shines the light of God right out of the gate. The lampstand shines the light of God. Now, if you could put the picture up there of, of the lampstand that I have, you got 
uh, this guy working, working. He, see, you see my high priest again, right? Y'all, y'all are bearing with me on my photos each time. But you see my high priest. He's working the, the lampstand. He's got his wick trimmers over here. He's got all of his utensils set up. Go to the next one. Here's another decent little picture of it. You see it with, it, with, with everything that's going on. You got the oil to pour into the lampstand to keep it going. But that's just a little figure so that you can have a visualization of what we're talking about. Now, when he says that he's going to build the lampstand, he tells him. Now, I want you to understand this because you got welders. You know, if, if I was sitting there figuring out how to build this, he commands him that you can only make this out of one piece of gold. I don't even know how you do that. Like I'd be trying to weld stuff in on the sides. How does he get those branches to go in there out of one piece of gold? I don't know, but he makes that out of one piece of gold. And what it ultimately points to that it represents is it represents not only Christ, but it also represents the church and it represents the spirit. Because at the end of the day, Christ, the spirit, and the church are all connected and God God has made us one together in the Spirit. And so that's why it cannot be separated because you and Christ are one, you and the Spirit are one, all of us together. As we sat here this morning listening to the Word of God, Jesus is here. The Spirit is here dwelling within us and we are there dwelling within them and we are all one together and it represents Christ, the Spirit, and the church. Now this sucker would have weighed about 75 pounds of gold which today is worth about $1.5 million in gold. So it was an expensive piece, probably one of the most expensive pieces in there. And it talks about, if you read, you remember the almond buds, and it had these almond buds, and, and, and it's a picture ultimately of a vine. But there's an interesting reason why he chooses an almond bud, because an almond tree is the first tree to bud in the spring. After you've went through a dark winter in the midst of the darkness and all of a sudden things begin to blossom, the first tree to blossom in Israel would have been the almond tree. And those were beginning to blossom. And it's a picture of Christ's resurrection. It's a picture of new life that comes. And it typifies the vine because if you see and you look at it, right, you've got six branches coming out on each side. Now six is the number of man. In the middle of the vine, in the middle of the branches is a vine that goes up the center that represents Christ Jesus. You have these six which represents human beings. It represents the church. And we are not complete unless we are connected to the seventh, which is the vine, the center, who represents Christ. This is, this is what it typifies. And so you see Christ at the center of everything. And you remember Jesus said in John 15, 5, He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. Now, somebody would say, you know what? That's, that's ridiculous. I can do all kinds of things without the Lord. I got a job without the Lord. I didn't even pray about certain things. We had a child without the Lord. All of these types of things. You may be able to do a lot of things and you think you're doing them without the Lord. But let me tell you something. In eternity, when all of our works are weighed in the balance and brought under judgment, what you're going to find is that everything that you did not do through and by, Christ himself is going to end up nil. It's going to end up zero. You may do some things without the Lord, but in the end they are of no eternal and significant value. He says, without me you will do nothing that ultimately brings about kingdom transformation in the world. Without me you can do nothing. And without Christ you could not breathe the very air that you breathe. He is in all things and behind all things. Now the Jewish sages, they actually taught that the lampstand or the menorah, they called it the light of the world. They believed that the tabernacle was the light of the world because God had given the Jewish people a very specific role throughout the world. And they, the light of God was to shine through the Jewish people. They were to see God through the Jewish people and the lampstand, they said, was the light of the world. This is what they called the light of the world. But like I said before, that center shaft, it speaks of Christ and those six on the side speak of the church. Now I want you, with that in mind, I want you to see this top-down view of, of the lampstand. So if you look at it from the top, you see how it's kind of shaped like an almond bud. But notice, they would put oil in the top of this, right? And each one on the sides, what are, which direction are they pointing? They're all pointing in toward the center. Because at the center of all things, you must have Christ in your life. Amen. There's a reason they all point 
to the sinner because it represents the church. And here's what I want you to understand is that your marriage, your job, your money, your finances, your career, everything in your life is ultimately, the light that people see in your life is ultimately designed to point to the sinner, to point to Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And the litmus test of any ministry, of any life, of this very church, of City of Hope Church, is about whether or not ultimately we point to Jesus and bring glory to His name and shine light on the person of Jesus. Listen, we can have good music. We can have good services. We can pack this thing full. We can grow to a thousand. But if Jesus is not the center, everything is worth nothing. Our lives are made to glorify Jesus. He's always at the center and we are to point to Christ. Now, if you, if you go on and you read in the book of Revelation, there are seven churches in the book of Revelation. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. It says, John, John said, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he's actually seeing an image of what we're talking about, except he sees these seven golden lampstands. And he says, And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. See, later Jesus is actually going to explain to John, he's going to say the seven golden lampstands that you see are actually the seven churches. And once again, he's saying, see, these churches, I am in the midst of these churches. Let me tell you something, Jesus is in the midst of this church. And if Jesus were to address this church today the same way that he addressed the seven churches in the book of Revelation, some people would say, well, what we do know about the seven churches in the book of Revelation is that they were his historical churches that existed during John's time. And Jesus actually rebukes five of them and gives them correction. There are two churches that he gives no correction for. But each measure of correction is ultimately about whether or not their main focus is still Jesus. Whether or not their main focus is still the truth of God's word and putting Jesus at the center. And some of them, some of them were beginning to turn and he was rebuking them. He was correcting them because their hearts were being pulled. And, and there was one church called the Laodiceans. And he said, listen, you guys think you're, you've become rich, you've become wealthy, you've got all of these things. But he says, you do not realize that you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. He said, you don't realize. And he said, because you're lukewarm, he said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So he's giving these corrections, but each correction is about whether or not you're still focused on Jesus, whether or not you're still centered on Jesus. Now, the scripture says that they would have to come in. Notice this. I don't know if you realize this or not, but like they come into the land. You ever, you ever walked around like we come home last night and Andrea, we drove up into the driveway and something on our porch was scooting. She said, oh my gosh, that was something, something's moved. Maybe somebody's been here. You know, and she went up and she scooted it back. Now, the priests would have to come in and oftentimes when they would come into the lampstand, they would notice that all of a sudden the tops of the lampstands had been shifted just a little bit. Could have been an earthquake. Maybe a wind broke through whenever they were opening, opening the veil and all of a sudden it shifted a little bit. But here's the thing, you got things going on in your life, difficulties, circumstances, worries, fears, financial problems, family problems, and all of a sudden you start to notice that your lampstand just sort of shifts away from center. You realize that sometimes. It just sort of begins to shift away from center and see the priest would have to come in and pull them back toward the center. And every, every day, listen, when we meet here every Sunday, I want you to focus back on the center. I want you to come back to Jesus and say, He's the main thing in my life. I'm living for Him. It's not about how, much thing, how many things I can earn. It's not about my job. It's not about ultimately even my family because all of those things become healthy and flow out of the fact that I'm focused on Jesus. I'm looking at Jesus. And here's the thing. Let me tell you something. We can have success, y'all. I had a guy in here Sunday night come up to me and he gave me, he said, he said, I feel like this is a word from the Lord. And he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he told me in the end is he said, never sell out for success. What is he saying? I'm telling you, there's a lot of churches, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of things in the world that are successful by the world's standards. You can have a lot of money, you can have a lot of things, you can be doing wonderful things online, you can be doing all kinds of awesome and amazing things, and all of those things are good, but success is never the goal. Our goal even as a church is not even to just get people to like church. Our goal is for you to have a radical encounter with a living Jesus. Because we believe He's alive. I believe He saves people. I believe He sets people free from addiction and from sin. I believe He heals sick bodies. I believe that we've not even scratched the surface of the possibilities of what Jesus can do in a human life.
We've not even scratched the surface of the possibility of what Jesus can do in a community when a body of believers is not just interested in coming to church and going through the motions, but they say, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here to lay down our lives. We're here to say, Jesus, everything is for you, and we will never stop focusing on the center. Whatever goes on in my life, ultimately, it is to bring glory unto your name. It's not for my own fame or my own benefit or for my own personal growth. It is for the glory and the kingdom of God. And when we have that, I'm telling you, there is nothing that can stop God from doing what He wants to do, what He needs to do in the earth. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. So you see that the lampstand, it represents Christ. He is the true vine, right? He's at the center of all things. And ultimately, He's the one that gives light. Here's, here's, here's one thing that's interesting. The one, the one that could be movable was the center one. And they would take the centerpiece up to light the other six. So you'd light the first one and then you'd pick it up and you'd light the other six because ultimately Christ is the only one that's going to light your flame. He's the only one that's going to keep you lit. And here's the other thing. Those flames could never go out. Those flames could never go out. And here's where the Holy Spirit comes into play in this because the Holy Spirit is the one that keeps the flame lit on the inside of us. Now, the reason the flame continued to burn was because there was oil in it, right? If you run out of oil, you're going to run out of some stuff. We, we, we run on propane at the house, and you've got to get that 500-gallon tank filled up all the time. You've got to keep your tank filled. In order to stay lit, you've got to make sure that you are full of fresh oil that is ready to burn and to keep the wick burning. You've got to stay lit, and it represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he told a parable. In Matthew 25, and he basically was teaching about when Jesus returns, when he comes back to the earth. And he talked about five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. He said the wise virgins, they took oil with their lamps, but the foolish virgins had no oil. And the oil represents intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And he said these, these five foolish virgins, they went to bed, and at midnight, in the darkest hour of the night... All of a sudden, a cry went forth. The bridegroom is coming. And when that cry went forth, they woke up, but they went to light their lamps, but there was no oil in their lamps. And they said, hold on, give us some of your oil. And the other one said, we don't have enough oil to give to you too. You might as well go buy some. But by the time they went and bought some, it was too late. The door was closed. And they had went in with the bridegroom. And what he's saying is, is in the darkest hour, I don't know if you realize it or not, but right now we are entering into more and more darkness in our world. Man, there are people that believe 2 plus 2 equals 5 right now. I'm telling you, there is some crazy stuff going on in our world right now. And there is darkness that is covering the earth. And it's beginning to infiltrate the minds of even the church. And he's saying, in the middle of that darkness, the one thing you got to make sure that you have is you have intimacy and communion with the Holy Spirit. Because there's a fire on the inside of you that you cannot allow the darkness of this world to quench. You've got to continue to shine. And if you're going to continue to shine, you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now remember, there were seven, seven total, right? Now they talk about the sevenfold Spirit of God in the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation. In Isaiah 11, it says this. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Notice what it says. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now put up that image that I have that has these six. So I don't know if you can see that well. But the idea, again, is that the Spirit of the Lord is central but then coming with the Spirit of the Lord, you have wisdom and understanding. You have counsel and might. You have knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? That means that if you maintain your relationship with Jesus and you keep that lamp burning, what you're going to find is that in difficult seasons in your life, you're going to have the wisdom you need to make the right decisions. If you maintain uh, your, your relationship with the Holy Spirit, if you're in worship, if you're in prayer, if you're in the Word of God, there are going to be moments when you're dealing with people and God will give you supernatural understanding and how to deal with relational issues and things like that. There are going to be moments when you're dealing with sickness or disease or some kind of trouble and all of a sudden the power and the might of God is going to rise up in you and you're going to have the authority to speak a word and see God move miraculously in a situation because you are in intimacy and communion with the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a fear of the Lord. That means that all of a sudden when the rest of the world is going crazy and choosing filth there's going to be a conviction in your heart that says I can't go that direction. I'm not going with the rest of the world. I'm going to maintain purity and I'm going to stay in line and in agreement with what God is doing. So you see all all of those things and they come through intimacy with Jesus that we have. 
Now, Zechariah, you move on talking about the Holy Spirit. In the book of Zechariah, I know I've got a lot of stuff I'm going through right here. But in the book of Zechariah, he has a vision of this lampstand, but it's a different kind of a vision. Now, Zechariah and a guy named Zerubbabel, and we're having a lot of babies, and if somebody don't name one Zerubbabel, I'm going to be upset. But Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and some of these other guys, they're coming back to rebuild a temple that is in ruins. And if you know anything about that, if you've been paying attention during this sermon series, the temple was all about their relationship with God. If they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a relationship. What that meant was that their relationship with God was in shambles. It was broken down, and they came back to rebuild this thing, and they got all kinds of obstacles. The enemy is against them. People are trying to thwart their mission, just the same way that the enemy right now is trying to hinder us from doing God's work in our generation and in our time. Amen. And so they come in and they're rebuilding and he sees this vision. Put that next picture up there, this vision. It's something like this. He says he sees two big olive trees. This is what, this is what the Lord showed him. Sometimes the Lord will show you weird stuff. Do y'all realize that? Say, well, that couldn't have been from the Lord. It's weird. Have y'all ever read the visions in the Bible? I mean, Joseph saw like seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And then he interpreted it. I mean, the Lord does some things that sometimes are beyond your understanding. And you need to expand your, your vision. You need to expand your ability to perceive what God may or may not be saying to you because he's bigger than your mind. But anyway, he's got two olive trees and he says, I saw two bowls where oil was coming into these bowls and then through two pipes it was coming into a larger bowl which ultimately was going into these seven things. And, and he said, I see that, Lord. He said, but Lord, what does that mean? He said, you know what this means. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Here's what he says in Zechariah 4, 6. He said, he answered to me. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, listen, you are not going to build this temple on your own natural resources. He says, Zerubbabel, you're not smart enough. Joshua the high priest is not smart enough. And Zechariah, you're not smart enough. Your own natural resources and wisdom is not going to get you through this. Right now, you've got an enemy that's attacking you that is a spiritual enemy. And you are not going to do this by your own might or power, but there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to move in people's hearts and I'm going to cause supernatural things to happen to bring together what I want to do into the earth and through that you are going to rebuild the temple. And see, you got to understand this because I know many of you are discouraged right now and oftentimes I get discouraged because I feel like God is calling me to something but I've got so many obstacles in front of me I think this is going to be impossible. We're never going to get there. But then all of a sudden... I begin to watch God pour out His Spirit on people. And when God starts to move in the Spirit, I'm telling you, you can almost step back and just begin to let God do what He wants to do. And some of you need to hear that it's not going to be because you try harder or work harder or get more or do more. It's going to be because you have a surrendered heart to the Lord. And He says, you know what? There's one that I can pour my Spirit out upon and I can do something that nobody else could do and say, look, that brings glory to God because it's not about them. And then he goes on to say, I love this, verse 7. He says, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. You need to say, think about this in your own lives. When the Holy Spirit comes, you got mountains in front of you. I don't know what it is. It could be a financial situation. It could be sickness or disease or fear or anxiety. But he says, this mountain is going to become a plain. It's going to be flattened. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Basically, he's going to say the way that we're going to do this, the way that we're going to bring transformation in our community is simply by the Spirit of God and by the grace, the undeserved favor and blessing of God on our lives. And I love what he says in Zechariah 4.10. He says, For who has despised the day of small beginnings? You say, well, man, this is just too small. It's not big enough. A small beginning means everything. You've got to start at some point in your life where God begins to move and you see that this is a small beginning, but man, this is where we start. This is where we begin and God is about to build something amazing in our lives, in us and through us. And that's where the resources are going to come and God is going to supply what we need. And some of you come in here this morning, you say, yeah, I know, but man, you don't understand what I've been going through, Clay. I've struggled. I've made some bad decisions and I feel like I'm on the verge of being burnt out. Anybody in here ever just felt like, man, I'm just burnt out. I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of seeking. I'm about tired of church, Clay. I didn't even want to come this morning. You ain't making it any better preaching the way you're preaching. This ain't no... You get burnt out. 
But I love what Jesus says. There's a, there's a passage in Isaiah 42 about Jesus. See, because they had to keep the wick burning, right? And oftentimes what would happen is this. I don't know if you've ever lit a candle and sometimes that sucker will go out on you. But if you get ash build up, you start to burn out. The wick gets dim. You ever get ash build up in your candles? Something like that. You get a little ash build up. See, that's why they had the wick trimmers. Because every now and then you get some ash build up where you start to burn out and the priest would have to come in and trim the wick. And what I'm telling you is that if you will allow Jesus to do it, He will come in and He will trim your wick where you've been burnt out, where you've been offended, where you've been hurt, where you've been, where, where you've been saddened or depressed or whatever. And He will trim that wick so that fresh oil can come back into that wick and begin to burn once again. And here's what it says in Isaiah 42 verse 3 and 4. It says, A bruised reed He will not break and a dimly burned wick he will not extinguish see in other words he's saying you may just be barely on fire but Jesus does not come to condemn you he does not come to put your fire out he says I know who you are I know the purpose that is in your life and the gifts and callings of God are without repentance you still got a purpose the spirit of God still lives inside of you you're still a child of God you're still anointed by the spirit of God and I will take what little fire you've got and I will fan it into flames and I will use you for my glory amen amen yeah give the Lord a hand clap if you want to Sometimes a hand clap will even, you know, fan it into flames a little bit, amen? It'll get it burning a little more. So we understand that the menorah, they said, was the light of the world. That's my first part. My second part, the end of my message here, I've only got two points. Jesus is the light of the world. So the lampstand in the old covenant gave light to the world in a sense because they could not serve in the tabernacle unless that thing was burning and it had to be maintained, always burning. See, we have to maintain what God has given us. we got to keep this flame burning. And I'm telling you, here's what I sense in my own spirit. I don't know. I, I, I feel like right now our flame right here in this community is beginning to get a little bit hotter. I feel like it's beginning to get a little bit hotter. And I'm saying, let's not slow down. Let's put a little bit more new fresh oil on it. Let's just let the Lord breathe on it. Let's let a little fan come in and set that thing ablaze. And let's just go deeper into God than we ever have before. But see, once we understand that, here's the thing. Once you understand that you are designed, right, to bring this light to God, so you got to start to think about the rest of the world that needs to see this light. And they need to understand that Jesus is the light of the world. And the only real way that they're going to know that Jesus is the light of the world is if you are burning brightly enough for them to see Jesus in you. Many times people aren't going to see Jesus anywhere unless they see Him in your life. Amen? So Jesus is the light of the world. And you know, rabbis, when Jesus would tell a story, they, rabbis would take their disciples on a journey. And sometimes they would stop. Like they'd be walking down the road and they'd see a guy, a farmer, sowing some seed. He'd say, hey, look, boys, look. You see this guy sowing this seed? He said, the way that he sows it over here on this path, he said, it's like, it's like sowing it on stony ground. And they would use that as a representation. Now Jesus is going to use a representation of actually a blind man in order to teach that He is the light of the world. Here's what it says in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 verse 1. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now how many of you would ask that question when you walk by a blind man? Some people do ask that question, don't they? Who sinned? Why is this man blind? Did somebody say, was it their, was his parents or did he actually do something that caused him to be born blind? And I'm thinking, man, how in the world are they going to cause something? Be, how are you going to do something to cause you to be born blind? Like, did he do something in the womb? Well, you know, I read some commentary and interestingly enough, the Pharisees' teaching during that time was that if a child was born with a deformity or some kind of an infirmity or something like that, that they would say that it's because either the parents sinned in some kind of horrific sin that it caused the child to be born that way, or maybe while the child was in the womb, it kicked its mommy's stomach too hard or something like that, and that sin caused it to be born a certain way. Can I say that's pretty much the dumbest religious teaching I've ever heard? If anybody's teaching that, run. Right? But they were teaching this stuff, and so Jesus begins to correct their theology. But A, let me give you this point. This healing that Jesus is about to do, I want you to understand that it reveals Jesus' identity. But notice in John chapter 9, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, 
but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus is saying this man's condition is not a result of his parents' sin or even his own sin. That's really Hinduism and karma, right? Like you, I don't know if y'all ever studied Hinduism. I wouldn't recommend it, but, but I get into conversations with people all the time because they're talking about religions and they say, well, you know, I don't know how you can just stick everything on Christianity and, and even, even throughout the world, Clay. I mean, there's so many people in the world that haven't had the chance to hear the gospel. Can I, t- can I tell you that right now, in places that you think people are not having the chance to hear the gospel. Right now, the church is growing faster in China, where it's illegal to be a Christian, and in Iran than it is anywhere else in the world. We've heard so much gospel that we don't hear it anymore. Let me tell you something. The people in the world are not left out. God is getting His gospel to the corner, the four corners of the earth. It is going forth. There are Muslims that are having dreams about Jesus and getting saved without even hearing the gospel. God is doing His work in the world. So never question and say, well, it just doesn't seem fair because we get to hear it and they don't get to hear it over there. God is doing His work throughout the world. And like I said, we've heard it till we're deaf to it. We're in worse shape than they are in Iran right now. We're in worse shape than they are in China. Well, guess what? We'll probably end up being like communist China before long, and then we'll either have to have the fire or we'll have to succumb to the ways of the world and give in completely. I'm telling you, there's going to come a time on, the, on this world. I know you don't want to hear it this, this beautiful Sunday, close to Easter, when our kids will be egg hunting and all the wonderful things of American life. But there's going to come a time when you're going to probably suffer some persecution. And you're going to have to decide whether or not Jesus is more important than your life. Amen. Right. This is good this morning. I'll calm down just a little bit. But here's the thing. Hinduism, karma, all these other religions, I've studied them all. Christianity is the only one that truly deals with the issue of death in a definitive way. All the rest of them are kind of goofy and you don't really understand what's going on. But we have a man that went into death and was raised again from the dead. Everybody else, spiritual leaders, have died and have not come back. And so we have one, but Hinduism believes that you're actually being reincarnated and coming back and you're being punished for something you did in a a last life that you don't even know about. Anyway, I took a rabbit trail. I'm coming back. So what you've got to understand is that he's saying this is not because of his parents' sin. It's not because of his sin, but it's becoming a platform for the glory of God. Now, I want you to understand this. Everybody is subject to sin. We live in a broken world, and when we're dealing with sickness, when we're dealing with disease, when we're dealing with sin, a lot of times there's a whole lot of randomness to it. We don't know why things happen the way that they happen. We don't know why certain things occur. But when I, when, this, this is a big issue for people because a lot of times we'll, we'll see the tragedies in the world, or we talk about sex trafficking, or kids being enslaved, or, or these different things like this, and we think that's not fair. Why would God allow, some people even say, cause that to happen? happen. Now their belief was that literally God caused this man to be born blind. And I remember when I was in seminary, I'm a, y- y'all probably aren't interested, but we were studying Greek and we were looking at problem passages because this was a problem passage because so many commentators had said, see, this verse proves that God ca- causes people to be born blind. I personally don't agree with that. I think sin causes people to be born blind. I think the brokenness of our world causes people to be born blind. Now, that does not remove God's sovereignty. He is over all things. There is nothing that passes through His hand. But ultimately, God causing something and God knowing that something is going to happen are two totally different things. And so when they ask this question to Jesus and they say, Jesus, was was it His sins or His parents' sin that this man was born blind? Jesus is basically saying, boys, you're asking the wrong question. We started to look at this verse piece by piece and really we came up with a better translation and I don't want to go through it because I'd have to talk about hortatory subjunctives and stuff that y'all wouldn't even have a clue what I'm talking about when it comes to the Greek language. But put up this revised ver- version here. Right? Jesus answered, Neither this man or his parents sin, but let the works of God be displayed. In other words, he's saying you're asking the wrong questions. I'm not here to discuss why this man is blind or why bad things have happened. I'm come, I've come to heal this man of blindness and fix bad things that have happened. That's what Jesus is about. 
That's what Jesus is about. And we've got to understand this because, see, if, if Jesus meant that God causes blindness, this would be the only verse in the New Testament that could back up such a thing because every other time that somebody was diseased, oppressed, sick, Jesus always attributed it to the demonic. This is why in Acts 10, 38, that Peter said, we know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. This means that ultimately God doesn't get glory from sickness itself. God gets glory from the healing and the deliverance of sickness. But here's, now I, I get it, some of y'all, I, there's like five people in here that are like, uh-oh, he's getting into something now. This, this kicks against my theology. I get it, I understand it. But here's my main point is that when Jesus shows up, he is the glory of God. And no point did he come to somebody that was sick and afflicted and say, you need to remain in that sickness because that is the glory of God. He never did it once. And I need you to understand that the scripture says that we know that in the end, the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, if there is a full emanation of the glory of God on earth, let me ask you this. When that happens, will there be sickness in the earth? Absolutely not. Why? Because the full radiation of God's glory will heal all things. When God is glorified, you see people set free. You see people saved. You see people delivered. Now, that does not mean that you're not going to go through stuff. I know blind people. And let me tell you something. God's getting glory out of their affliction because they are trusting God anyway. And sometimes we don't know why people don't get healed. We pray for people and they don't get healed. That's where God's sovereignty comes in. We don't know all things, but we're the people of God and we pray and we believe for healing. And when it doesn't come, we trust God anyway. And we say, you know what? We ain't going to blame this on God. We're going to trust God. We're going to know that He's good and He will give us the strength that we need to persevere through all things because He is the light of the world. Amen. And so He's going through this and Jesus is dealing with this. And then he says in, in chapter 9, verse 4 through 7, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he, I, I love this. Like how many of y'all, if you're going to pray for somebody, you're going to like spit and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Come over here, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> Rub a little earwax on your forehead right quick. I mean, that's the kind, you know what I'm saying? Like, you need to reread the Bible. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's making reference to the lampstand and then he heals the man. Now this is very interesting because this actually happened on one of the three main Jewish feasts, which means people would have been everywhere. Jesus is doing this on purpose and when he anoints his eyes, he wants people to see it. This is actually a sign that is taking place. He wants people to see it because if you look at the map of Israel where Jesus was when he put that mud on this man's eyes, down to the pool of Siloam was about a mile's walk. He's asking a blind man to take a mile walk with mud in his eyes down a street that would have been completely crowded and packed. And you might say, well, Jesus, that's a little bit rude. Ain't you going to at least walk him down there? He wanted the people to see this man stumbling so that they would start watching. Where's this man going? Where's he, what's up with him? He just left Jesus. He's going down here to the pool of Siloam. He wanted a gathering because he wanted them to see. He wanted them to see. He needed them to understand, you think this man's blind, y'all the blind ones. And I'm trying to open your spiritual eyes to, to see the reality of something greater. It's one thing to be blind here, it's another thing to be blind here. And he's trying to go do something far deeper than what we can imagine in this instance. And see, so the healing represented Jesus. It, it revealed who Jesus was, A. But B, the healing exposed the religious leader's unbelief. In verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now can I tell you that Jesus never broke the Sabbath? But religious people kept getting mad at Jesus because you know what he'd do? He'd come into the temple and he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. He never broke the Sabbath. He just broke the rules of the religious people. Religious people hate it when God moves in church. Somebody amen me right now. I, like, I about started shouting right then. They hate it when God moves in church. If God really moves, if God were to heal somebody this morning, somebody would probably be aggravated with it. That wasn't God. They would. 
And th- this, is, this is the Pharisee's response. And, and so others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they're wrestling with what's going on. Now here, I need to set this up for you. Because the, the Jewish people, they believe something very specific. They believe that when the Messiah came, there would be three certifiable signs that the Messiah would do. Jewish people believe this. They believe that one, the Messiah would come and he would heal a leper because leprosy was pretty much unhealable to a large degree. Only God could do it. No man had ever healed leprosy. Matter of fact, if you touched a leper, you became unclean and were cast out from society. So Jesus heals a leper. Secondly, they believe that the Messiah would come and set free a demon-possessed man that could not speak. And you remember specifically, Jesus healed one that was both dumb and deaf. He couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. And he cast the demon out and the man spoke. And that was a representation because when they cast out demons, they believed that you had to ask the demon its name. And if you couldn't get the, demon, uh, the demon's name, you couldn't cast it out. So he comes and there's a man, he couldn't even ask him a question. He just said, hey, devil, get out. He get out and the man starts speaking. So that was the certified. But then the final and the last sign that they knew the Messiah would perform is that he would heal a blind man. Because in order to heal a blind man, you've got to recreate an eyeball. There's olfactory nerves and there's things back there that create light and you have to bring recreation into that. And they knew that when the Messiah came, he would heal the blind man. And they're asking, where do these signs come from? So there's a division. You got the Pharisees saying this dude's of the devil. You got some other people that are very curious and they're sitting there thinking, maybe this dude is legit. Maybe he's real. And here's what it says in John 9, 18 through 22. It says, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that it's our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now see, they're scared to death because they believe they're going to get kicked out of the church. Can I give you a tip? Like if you get kicked out of some churches, you should be excited. There are some churches I'd like to get kicked out of. You know what I'm talking about? And... They're afraid, but here's, here's what a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum said. All right, I found this. Another amazing name. Like, if some of y'all have kids, what we say the first one was? Zerubbabel Fruchtenbaum, and then whatever your last name is. But here's what he said. To be separated from the Jewish community was considered to be the curse of death. A person who was put out of the synagogue could have no communication with anybody from the community from that day forward. It was similar to being dead. And they say, ask him because we don't want to be kicked out from the community. That's what they're trying to protect. And so it goes on in in verse 24. It says, so they called the man again who was blind. And he said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, they're speaking of Jesus being a sinner. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. You're choosing to not see. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love what he's saying. He's getting a little snooty with them, right? You guys want to be his disciples too? Why are you asking me? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from, yet he has opened my eyes. He's referring back to the fact that they knew that the Messiah would heal the eyes of a blind man. He knew. He's an uneducated man and he's teaching men who knew the Bible and he's saying, you guys know what we believe. It's a marvelous thing. I was blind, now I see. You don't know where he's from. This is the Messiah. This is the guy. He's calling him out. And then he goes on and he says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, he hears Him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out 
of the synagogue. So notice this. He's telling the truth, telling what happened. They cast him out of the synagogue. You know that there are denominations right now that God could do something amazing in your life. You could testify it to it and they will cast you out. Somebody amen me this morning, right? God can move and do miraculous things and we can testify to it. I'm going to tell you all something this morning. I'm just crazy enough to believe that God can do the miraculous. And I will never put limits on the Lord. I've prayed for many people and I've prayed for many things. And I've seen some miracles happen. And I've seen a lot of times where nothing seemed to happen. But that will never ever stop me from believing who God is, what He's capable of, and what He will do. And we can never, listen, you can never pray and get into a position where you get so hurt by what didn't happen that you stop praying and believing for God to do something once again. If we do not believe, this world is lost. If we don't believe God can break through and save a soul, can heal a body, this world is lost. We leave it up to God, but our goal is to seek God and to pray and to believe. And we can never get into this place where we cease doing that. But he, he is, He's beginning to convince them. But what does He use to convince them? I'm going to tell you something that's very convincing because I could bring out Scripture. Like probably there's some things I've said this morning. We could go and you could argue theology with me and I might be wrong about a couple of things. We could argue Scripture. But one thing that you'll will never be able to argue with me is the fact that Jesus took me out of darkness and brought me into light, set me free from drug addiction, set me free from my bondages. And not only that, I've seen God set people free from multiple personality disorders. I've seen demons come out of human beings. I've seen God heal people instantly just like that. And I've got a testimony. See, in my testimony, you can argue with me all day, but I have seen it with my very own eyes. And this man says, you know what? I don't know necessarily where he's from or or, or why I'm healed or whatever. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And I don't know what you're going to say, but I can't lie about this. This is a reality. And one of the most powerful things in your life is not your ability to debate and argue Scripture. The world doesn't need that. The world needs a transformed life. Somebody amen me on that. If we walked out of here and everybody was taught theologically and everybody had a seminary degree, I guarantee you we would not be near as powerful as everybody having had a living encounter with a living Jesus. Man, theology can only take you so far. It's good, but man, if, it doesn't, it's, if it's not breathed on by the breath of the Spirit of God, who cares? If the Lord's not moving in our midst, if people's lives aren't being changed, who cares? It doesn't matter, but you've got a testimony. And my question to you is, when's the last time you shared your testimony with somebody? When's the last time you said, this is what God's doing in my life? Because it's one of the most powerful things you carry is your testimony. What God has done, what God is doing in your life in this this moment, in this hour. See, but this miracle... It wasn't just for the man. It was, it was for everybody else too so that they could see. In John 9 verse 35 through 39, I'm finishing up right here. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. In other words, he's saying, you know what, this man right here that couldn't see, y'all thought he was blind, but not only have I given him physical vision and given him physical light, but now I've given him spiritual light. He doesn't just see with his physical eyes, but he sees now with his heart. And even though I've demonstrated that and you have seen it and watched it with your physical eyes, yet with your heart you still do not see because you choose to reject who I am. See, Jesus is either a crazy man or he's the most significant figure that has ever existed. And you've got to make a decision on that. Is Jesus a crazy man or is he God in the flesh, the most important person who has ever lived upon which your eternal destination revolves everything revolves around him and see here's the thing we've got blind spots i was pulling out i I stopped by actually and visited shannon there the other day and as i was pulling out shannon i pulled out and i I was just kind of you know just cruising going real slow and a dude got my blind spot spot and i just about killed that guy son he's honking and he went he went up he went up there to the to the post office or whatever and i pulled out he may be in here this morning i'm sorry buddy but i went i went up to his door and knocked on the window i said buddy i about killed you and me both i'm sorry you got my blind spot i didn't mean to it he's like yeah 
I thought, I was like, well, come on then. Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I said, I, I said, yeah, again, I'm sorry. I apologize. He said, it's all right. It happens. And then we went on. My point is, we've all got blind spots. I know you've got theology. I know you've got beliefs. I know you've got things where you've been hurt. I know you've been let down before. But I'm telling you, that doesn't change who Jesus is. And you've got to recognize that you've got blind spots in your life. You've got things that you can't see. And there's a lot of things that we can disagree on, but we can agree on the main thing. is that, that, that is Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And the one thing that keeps us from coming to Jesus and growing deeper in Jesus is usually our arrogance or our pride. Right? It's our pride. And these Pharisees, these religious people who knew everything in the Bible, who knew all when it came to doctrine, were unwilling to relinquish their pride to come to Jesus and come into a deeper relationship. Now, here's a man that's utterly cut off from a community, but he's fully welcomed by Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Religion may, may not welcome you, but Jesus always welcomes you with open arms. He always welcomes you with open arms. And I want you to imagine this man because he's sitting there blind, been blind since birth. And all of a sudden he hears somebody say, hey, Jesus is coming by. And he can't see anything. And they say, hey, Jesus is coming by. And then all of a sudden he hears a crowd gathering around and all of a sudden maybe he hears somebody stoop down beside him. And then he hears a dude spit. And all of a sudden he feels somebody touching his eyes. And he hears Jesus say, walk down to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he makes that mile-long journey. And you imagine, man, his heart is beating out of his chest. And all of a sudden he gets down there and he washes his eyes. And for the first time in his life, he opens his eyes. He looks in the reflection of that pool and he sees his face. Now I'm telling you, that's, that's what happens. The same thing happens spiritually when a believer who's been in darkness for so long finally comes to Jesus and they see who they really are. And that's the decision that you've got to make today. You've got to make today this decision. I know many of you, you're Christians. I'm, I, almost everybody in Clay County is a Christian. You can talk down here to a drug dealer who just murdered three people last night. He'd say, I'm a Christian. The Lord's done me good. Right? That's the way Clay, Clay Countyans are. But you've got, you've got to make this decision in your own heart. Right? Won't you bow your head with me just for a moment? Let's pray together. I want you to understand that the pain and the suffering that this man endured became his platform to share the gospel. And some of you, you've been through a lot of pain and suffering, but what if God is setting it up so that that pain and suffering is becoming a platform for you to share the gospel with somebody else? And so, Lord, I just pray right now for each and every person. God, you know their hearts. You know who's in darkness. You know who needs your light to shine in their hearts right now. And if that's you, I just want you to, as an act of faith, say, you know what, I've, I've been in darkness, but I'm ready to follow Jesus. I want to experience the salvation that only He can bring. Would you just raise your hand right quick as an act of faith? Raise it up high where I can see it, please. I see one. Anybody else? I see another one. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? Just right there where you're at, I just want you to begin to pray. Pray to the Lord your own prayer. If you raise your hand right now, the Lord can come and do something in your heart.